We ended last week on 11 to 13. Uh, let's just go ahead and start there with that, with that paragraph. Tyler, take it away. What, just anything from that paragraph that we can begin to think about. Yeah. Um, something that stood out to me was just the, the closing end of, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest um, so that no one will be no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Um, just the urgency, I think, that Fred mentioned last week of this concept of, you know, today. Um, do not harden your heart while it is still today. Um, so there's this sense in which the author has been building throughout this warning um, a concept of urgency, and we see that really with, therefore, let us be diligent. Um, I think the ESV translates it, let us strive. Um, and I think that's a better translation of this word because it really pushes the force of pursuing and, and running towards this goal. And in fact, um, it's often translated in other areas with Paul um, in First Timothy and even Titus, where he says, make every effort. Um, it's the same word. And so we should be making every effort to what? To enter into that rest. Um, which rest? God's rest, this perfect rest. And I think just in context of the warning, I think it's helpful to just re- remind ourselves that just because we're saved or now doesn't mean we, we've entered into that rest necessarily. This is something we're, we're pushing forward to and to enter into later, this eschatological uh, rest, this uh, culmination of the end that you mentioned last week, Mark. And though while at the same time, believers still um, can relish in the rest that's offered in Christ currently. However, this rest is something we still push for. Um, and I think that's just bouncing back. I, th- I think this should really be understood as well as verse 12 um, within the context um, of that. Um, not to jump too far ahead past verse 11, but verse 12, I think I've misunderstood this verse my entire life in the sense that I've always kind of viewed it as like a, like a tweet or an Awana verse where it's completely removed from its context. And it's just this very, you know, we champion this verse. This is a verse that talks about the Word of God, especially within our circles you know, that the Word of God is living and active. But really, when you really consider this verse within its context, it's, it's actually quite terrifying, if you think about it. This is how he's closing his warning, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Um, and the gaze of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, is upon all creatures, and essentially you're going to give an account to him. And so just kind of meditating through that has been really impactful for me this um, past two weeks, just kind of studying on this and, and thinking through this. Is that included? Just a question, uh, Tyler. Is that that's not included necessarily as a warning verse always either? I don't think is it. No, I mean I definitely absolutely believe. But it is that, a warning verse. Yeah, I definitely saying. I think the scriptures is clear that the word of God is living and active. Um, it's living because it's, it's alive. Yes, because God's the the living God, so His word is going to be living it by nature it's living um it's active it's where we get the term energy um it's it's actively living and and so with that it also pierces but i think in the immediate context it's the author's using this as more of a a warning in the sense of this is the accountability we have because at the beginning of the hebrews right jesus is presented as the great revelation bringer the greater revelator um, he is greater than any other uh, prophet who has come before. He is the ultimate one because he's the son. And the author here is closing kind of this, this section with kind of going back to the word that Jesus is the one who we are ultimately held accountable to because 
his word is what we're accountable for in that sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so just to kind of refresh us here with what Tyler's talking about, last week, the, our Christian life was compared to the wilderness wandering, right? So they had left Egypt led by Moses, and they were heading through 40 years in the wilderness, and they were heading towards rest, the promised land, the, the rest. And he says, don't take for granted and presume on God's grace just because you, at least apparently, you think left Egypt led by Moses. Just because you think you've, you've entered the Christian life with Jesus, the better Moses, and you're heading towards the promised land, don't presume that I can just be lazy with my sin and let my sin take over because once saved, always saved. I don't have anything to be concerned about. I prayed at youth camp. Everything's going to be fine. He says, no, no, no. Strive to enter that rest. Don't presume that you'll enter the rest if you're not showing evidence of being born again. Uh, those who are truly born again persevere. They fight. They, they get up when they sin and they repent afresh and they keep moving. So he says, the word of God is going to reveal our heart. And when it does do surgery on our heart and reveal sin, are we going to obey what it points out? Or are we going to, you know what this is like, kind of cover over it, ignore the conscience, right? We've all been there, right? The conscience is starting to light up like the dash on the, on the, you know, you're driving your car, check engine light. Okay, there's something wrong here. Your conscience is saying, you probably should think about what you're doing. And you go, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop that into a habit and I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to go. And Paul says you can sear your conscience like with a hot iron so it doesn't feel like it used to. And you can lead down this path that is a terrifying thing. That's the terrifying aspect. So he says, don't, don't give into that. Strive to enter his rest, which it almost sounds... Funny's not the right word, but strive to rest sounds funny. You know, it's like you've got to really put in the effort to rest in Jesus. It's not easy to rest in Jesus. It's easy to rest in finances, rest in relationships, rest in job, rest in circumstances. He says, no, you do everything in your power by God's Holy Spirit to rest in the right place. It was strive to enter that rest. Strive to focus on, on Christ being that rest. Yeah, and just to be clear, just in case there's any miscommunication on my part or just any confusion in general, this is not teaching at all works-based salvation. This is not teaching, if you strive, you will therefore be uh, saved in the end by your merit. But rather, this is a great example I heard of um, one professor mentioned this, is, you know, genuine faith has genuine obedience that follows. It's, it's like the Iron Man suit, right? If you genuinely have the Iron Man suit on, you're not just going to go sit on your couch. You're, you're actually going to go out and do something with the suit, so genuine faith, you're, you're going to genuinely be doing something for the Lord. Um, you're going to be persevering. You're going to be striving to enter that rest because of how great Christ truly is, because of everything the author's already presented, right, in the first couple chapters is to elevate and exalt Christ for who he is. And that reality is what should drive us to strive to enter that rest because that's who we will dwell with. And I want to get to Greg here. So let's start transitioning into our new text today. And the transition, I think, is this. Okay, if we, we need help to rest in the right place. We need help to enter that rest. We, we need someone who can come alongside and be a sympathetic, faithful high priest to help us in this hard work of the Christian life. And so, Greg, can you start moving us into these amazing verses 14 through 16? Sure. Um, okay, verse 14, let's read that again. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Uh, several things going on here, I think. 
1, he has already mentioned Jesus as our great high priest. Look again at chapter 2, uh, verse 17. Speaks of Christ uh, being made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then again, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he has already called Jesus high priest uh, a couple of times, and now he's bringing that idea back into the conversation. And he's staying true to this emphasis on perseverance. In a way, we could even say this uh, exhortation, let us hold fast our confession, is one of the ways, maybe the chief way, that we strive to enter the rest. Because it's let us hold fast to what we've hoped in, to what we've confessed that comes back again and again to this. And so how do we strive? We strive by holding fast to our confession. That means we confess Jesus as Lord, the, the only way, our great high priest, the only Savior, propitiation for sins. We confess all of that, that all our hope is in Jesus, and we enter the rest if we don't uh, abandon that confession, but we hold tight to it through the end. Um, and so we hold fast to that confession, and he's couching it in thinking about Jesus as our great high priest. And so he's transitioning into this talk about Christ as high priest in contrast to the Levitical high priest. And he's going to talk about this for a little bit. He's going to break off into that fun warning section in chapter 6 and then come back to Christ as high priest in chapter 7. So look at verse 15. This is what he, what he gets into here in terms of how the high priesthood of Jesus actually impacts our life. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, and one of the, the biggest things I think we can take away from, from this, um, at the very least, is that Jesus can sympathize with each one of us in our struggle against sin. Um, I mean, just think of your daily battles in your own heart that no one but you know about, um, and the agony that that can sometimes cause, just um, the right attitude towards someone, or you know, struggling to, to think about God and what's right instead of this other thing that's wrong. You know, Jesus didn't have sin within, but he still understood the power of temptation. He was fully human in every way, and so he gets the, the power to turn away from God. Um, and so he can sympathize with us in that. He, 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 was, he was like us in every way. And so when we struggle with sin, we don't have to wonder, you know, does God care? Is God not moved? No, we have a Savior who, who is moved because he's been there. He's been there probably in ways stronger than any of us will ever be there in terms of temptation and the struggle against sin. But he sympathizes. You know, he's sympathetic. I mean, think about what that, that word conveys. When we think of being sympathetic towards someone, it um, means you can feel what they're going through. You can hurt with them. And so in that sense, Jesus, he gets us. He gets our weakness. He gets, and he talks about this with the high priest in just a little bit, but he gets us. He, he, he understands. I mean, that's absolutely huge for me. Because when we sin and we fail, we're like, man, I've screwed up again. Is God going to accept me? You know, I messed up in the same thing. Jesus gets it. We don't have to, to wonder if God's going to, to welcome us in when we come repentant. 
Because Christ understands what we go through. That's why he says, in light of that, with confidence, not with hesitation, not, you know, wondering whether or not God's going to welcome us, but with confidence, he says, verse 16, draw near to the throne of grace, not a throne of harsh judgment, a throne of grace. And if you're a believer, the only throne you come to is a throne of grace, undeserved favor, unmerited favor. You couldn't do anything to earn it. You couldn't do anything to earn this direct access to the throne room of heaven, to the very God who sits on that throne. We couldn't do anything to access it uh, by our own goodness, our own works, but we are welcome to come, he says, with confidence. To find what? Mercy, to receive mercy and find grace to help. Because again, Christ is there. He knows what we go through. God is ready to be our help in those moments of weakness when we have messed up in the same thing for the umpteenth time and we're just, can, can, I, can I have one more chance, Lord? And God's like, look, come, run to me. I want you to come to me because I want to help you. Yeah, just, just jumping off on that, that's really helpful. Uh, when, we, when we sin and we are genuinely repentant, we, we are genuinely hating what we've done and we want help and we, we turn to the Lord. I don't know how you picture, you know, what is God's disposition towards me? So like, say you sin for the hundredth time in some area that's, that's a struggle for you and you really are turning from it. You, you hate it and you want help fighting it. When you are repenting, I'm not talking about someone living in sin, when, when you are resisting it, wanting help, and you turn to the Lord Jesus, you have to know that he is not staring at you like, you know, the principal who's kind of knows that you're up to no good. You know, like, oh, I know you, uh, or, you know, some kind of, uh, some, no, no, it's not like that. Um, it, it's, he, he, is, he is compassionate, gracious. He is pursuing. He wants us to turn to him. He, he delights in helping. He delights in pursuing. So I, I think that that, that idea of, of he wants to help. And Tyler, you talked a little bit about how that concept has been, that bu- the book is, uh, tell me the book, Gentle? Yeah, the book is Gentle and Lowly. Um, I forget the author's name. I think it's Dane Dane Orland. Orland. Dan, Dane Orland. Um, he actually has two chapters that are specifically dedicated towards the beginning of his book towards um, this particular verse as well as um, one, I think, in chapter two um, as well. But it's an immensely helpful um, book in this regard. And he bases it on Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ, the Puritan paperback. Um, essentially, what he's doing in that book um, is he's taking Thomas Goodwin's um, overall concept in uh, the heart of Christ, and he's essentially making it more modernized, uh, a lot more simple and easy to read. Um, it's a good primer to go and read Goodwin's uh, wait, wait. book. Tyler, so we'll, we'll act like we're having a little coffee chat here. So you, you said when you started, can you just give a little personal testimony of when you started reading the book, a little bit of a struggle you had and what it did for you? Yeah, so I tend, I was telling Mark, I was like, I tend to kind of lean more in my view of Christ in this more of this uh, Lion of Judah, you know, very angry towards sin all the time. Um, and I don't always embrace um, the tender, um, lowly, gentle heart of Christ. I, I think that's where I tend to kind of, I tend to go towards the other extreme. And so this book has been really helpful in just kind of reframing and reminding me that, that through his own testimony, Christ has said, I am gentle and lowly. I mean, he, he gives that definition of himself and his heart by his, his own words. And, and so um, the book has just been really helpful and eye-opening, um, just kind of helping break down just some tendencies I tend to have in my own kind of perception of Christ on a daily basis of struggling with sin or fighting against sin or 
um, even um, not always having the confidence we should have in approaching the throne of grace. And so I would highly recommend the book. Um, have not finished it, so I can only recommend the first ten chapters. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure the other ones are just as good. Well, Fred, how, how has this doctrine been a comfort to you, this idea that Christ is near us, he's sympathetic, uh, he's there to help, he's, he understands temptation? How, how has that been helpful for you personally? You know, it, actually, these verses, 14, 15, 16, have been major because, you know, I recognize that he has been tested. You know, he has been um, tempted, uh, but yet without sin. Like Greg mentioned, he wasn't born with uh, sin like we were, with the sin uh, uh, quotient, I guess. But, uh, but nonetheless, he was tempted in all the ways that we were tempted. I mean, you know, he, and, and, and not just at the cross, not just in Gethsemane. Not, we think about Later on, we think about some of these verses. Yeah, yeah, he went through that awful night and, and the trial and the beatings and the crucifixion. No, 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 his entire life. Now, I don't know what the age of accountability for the Son of God was, but I know at 12, he said, I must be about my father's business. He knew at age 12 what his business was. And so his whole life, he faced this temptation. His whole life, he said no. To Let me just, just that's, that's helpful. So just, just think of it like this. Let's use a silly illustration. Let's say you've got uh, two five-year-old boys, and they're in the kitchen, and they're, they always want cookies because they're five-year-old boys. So it's a two five, well, I mean, do we really ever outgrow that phase of life where you want chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> um, we just try to be more adult about it, you know. When no one's looking, we grab one, really, right? We're at the party. So th these two kids are sitting there, and let's say that the, they have the same, let's say they're brothers, and the mom says, okay, you, right now we're not going to have cookies. It's, you know, we're, wait for after dinner, and it's 4 o'clock, and the cookies have just been baked or whatever. They're looking really good, and they're sitting there, and they're kind of, the mom's like, don't you, don't think about it. Don't you think about it. So let's say uh, kid number one, we should, uh, call, him, call him Tim. I don't know. <laughs> so there's Tim. Tim is sitting there, and he's like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really really want one of those cookies. And uh, he's looking at his brother and he's like, you know, it'd be, you know, I mean, I'll still eat dinner. Mom's, mom went down the hallway, it'll, it'll be fine. So after say 20 minutes, which is, you gotta give the kid credit, 20 minutes is pretty good on resisting temptation like that. You can smell it just all, so he just gets up, he wanders over, pulls the chair up, gets up to the counter, takes a cookie, you know, and runs off to the, some closet and eats it. Like, they'll, they'll never find the evidence, right, of the crumbs. And so, and the chocolate on the face, I don't know, I, I don't know, someone took it. I don't know who it was. So, so he comes back, and then the, the second kid, Stephen, <laughs> the second kid is sitting there, and, and he's, he's doing really good. Stephen, little Stevie, he's doing great. And, and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't budge, and he, he resists for the next hour and a half, eats dinner, and then he gets one. Which of those two kids understands temptation more? And the answer is not the kid who gave it. It's the kid who didn't give it. And so this idea that Jesus doesn't really get temptation at all. Like, he doesn't really get it because he's God. He's Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. No, we don't really get temptation because we give in. Jesus faced temptation, and every single time he endured all the way and never gave in. So who, who gets temptation? Not sinners. It's a sinless human being who really understands temptation. So, so this should actually be an encouragement to go to him in our, in our temptation. So you're being tempted by one of a hundred things, and you know it's wrong, and, and, and it's starting to tempt you. Go to the Lord and say, Jesus, 
You know what it is like to resist temptation always to the end. Please right now be the sympathetic high priest. Give me grace for help in a time of need. You don't go to the throne of judgment, you go to the throne of grace, like y'all said, and, and you ask him. And the Lord Jesus loves, he delights to give you grace in your time of need to say no to temptation. He loves to do that. He enjoys it. He delights in it. It would be an insult to him to turn away from him in that moment. But, but to go to him and say, I need your grace, he's not stingy in giving grace. He gets honor and you get help. Uh, what could be better than that? And so we, we should see this as an inviting passage of, of going to Jesus. Yeah, just, just I want to point out a few things here. Look at what the author says. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, first off, we have, we possess, we actually, as believers, this is our high priest. And it's not just a high priest, it is a great high priest. It is greater than any high priest. By the author's choice of word, he adds in great high priest. He could have just said, and therefore, since we have a high priest, but he doesn't. He chooses to say, therefore, since we have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice the language, who has passed through, past tense. Not is passing through, not will pass through, but has passed through. Why is that significant? Because it offers us a real sense of security that in this high priest, we know that we can actually receive mercy and find grace in our time of need because he's actually passed through, whereas all the other mere men high priests have just simply passed through a veil or passed through a door, but this one has passed through into heaven where God doesn't just temporar temporarily d dwell. He actually, that's his place of residing. He's actually in, Jesus Christ is in the presence of God. And that's where he's going here, Jesus, the Son of God. He, notice there's one other time so far where the author has used the name Jesus. It was dealing with his um, humanity that Mark mentioned a few weeks ago in chapter 2. So the author specifically now chooses to name his name again. And we don't, we don't understand this. When someone's name is mentioned in Scripture, it actually has weight and meaning behind it. Because in ancient times, people's names meant something. And Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. And it's this one who is our high priest, this one who is the Son of God. Remember all of the author's argumentation up to this point. Christ is greater because he's the Son. He's at a place of privilege, a place of honor, a place of specific uniqueness. It's not just that Jesus is better or Jesus is greater than Moses or Aaron or the angels. It's Jesus is in a category all by himself. He is completely alone in his superiority and exaltation. And what's so fascinating is the author tells us that this high priest, we have one who can actually sympathize with us in our weaknesses and one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And I would, I would just like to argue that this, I don't think, is dealing so much with Jesus's just the fact that he never sinned. And the reason I say that is because, one, the author chooses this, the noun form for sin here. If the author just simply wanted to communicate the fact in reality that Jesus never sinned, he could have used the verb form, but he doesn't. He says Jesus was without sin, the noun, so he doesn't have the nature of sin. And therefore, as Mark was saying, he actually understands temptation better than you do. He's actually a greater high priest 
who can actually empathize with you in your sin, in your weaknesses, in your struggle, because he actually went farther. He went beyond where you have ever been in temptation. He's the only one who's ever been there. And it's this high priest, this great high priest that we have. He is the one who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one who's interceding for us. And I think far too often in our gospel understanding and our gospel presentations, we stop right at the cross. You know, a couple people might mention the resurrection, but no one talks about the ascension. And that's vital for the Christian life, to have Christ in heaven as our high priest, because he has went beyond temptation in the sense that he's actually came out victoriously. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, how can he actually empathize with me? He's the Son of God. He's perfect. He doesn't really understand. The reality is he, he truly does understand for the very reason that Mark just gave. He, he's felt the temptation and the pressure in a far greater way than you ever could. I mean, a silly example of this is, say you need a surgeon. Do you want to go to the surgeon that's like, hey man, I don't know really that much about surgery. And I know probably just as much as you it's do. my kind of guy. And I've, I've messed up on a lot of surgeries. I'm not very good with a scalpel. Or do you want to go to the surgeon who says, I've never failed. I've never messed up. I understand it greater than anyone else, and I've never messed up. I've never sinned. I've never failed in any surgery. I've always come out 100% with a perfect surgery. Which doctor do you want to actually be there to comfort you when you're struggling going into the operation room? You want the one who knows what they're doing. Christ, as our high priest, can actually come alongside you and empathize with you. The Greek term there for sympathize is closely related to our understanding of empathy. It's not just sympathy. Sympathy is like, well, you know, Greg, I'm sorry, I, I feel for you. But empathy is, I genuinely understand. I genuinely you're know what you're going in through. There, yes. In their situation. It's, I mean, really consider, I mean, look at what the author starts out this section with. Therefore, in light of everything you've already heard, in light of the warning passage, you're probably sitting there wondering, well, how do I persevere, author of Hebrews? Here's how. Look at your high priest, who's more than a high priest. He's a great high priest. He's the great high priest who has actually passed through into the heavens. And he actually can empathize with you in a way that no one else can. I mean, really let that sink in. No one ever, who's ever existed, no other man can understand temptation more than Jesus Christ. That's He's why he had one. to be incarnated. Yes. So he would taste, be able to taste death, so he'd be able to be tempted and, and, and be our representative, yes. our mediator. In, in, in this Messiah, this Jesus, this great high priest, it's the only source for mercy and grace. There's no other source outside the Trinity. You will not find it anywhere else. Well, building on that, because that, this is a great launching point to, we're going to, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit yep. here, uh, verse uh, 7 through 10. Pay attention to the language here. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Like that is an amazing statement. So in, in light, Tyler, of, of what you've been saying, like 
you know, him empathizing like not like he 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 has experienced humanity at every level of humanity from childhood through adulthood and at every point he was tested in whether or not he would obey God or turn away from God and at every point he obeyed he learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, we, we think of suffering, and suffering oftentimes pushes us into disobedience, even if temporary, and then we repent. But Jesus never got to a place where he had to repent because he never disobeyed. Um, and so think about that. He, he was put in different situations. I mean, we know primarily his passion, his suffering, um, you know, when he was, you know, mocked and beaten and crucified. Um, but throughout his life, he learned obedience. Think back. We mentioned, uh, one of y'all did, when he was 12 years old in the temple, um, his parents were like, why have you done this to us? We've been worried sick about you. And Jesus was like, you know, I had to be in my father's house. And, but then what does it say? He was obedient to them or submissive and he went home. He could have stayed in the temple and been right to do so, but he also knew he could not be disobedient to his parents. So the suffering of parental pressure to mom and dad are telling me to do this and I really don't want to, he, he obeyed. And it was a testing time, a suffering time, because he had every right to be in the temple. More than any person in the world, he had a right to be there. But he obeyed. So at every point at which we have been tempted, he was tempted and prevailed. So throughout the entirety of our life, from, from you know, as soon as we're able to, to understand obedience and disobedience, the yes and no, I mean, think, think, think about parents. We, we don't have to teach our kids um, to disobey. We have to teach them to obey. We say no more than we say anything else when they're really little. Jesus was never told no. Um, his parents expressed concern, and he obeyed. He, they didn't have to say no Jesus or bad Jesus because he didn't do that. Um, so throughout the totality of his life, um, just underscoring everything you were saying, man, that was awesome. Um, he learned obedience. And, you know, I think we can apply that to ourselves and say that every instance of suffering that God brings us to is an opportunity to learn obedience. It's an opportunity to learn obedience. It doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, again, obedience in the midst of, of temptation and suffering is, is excruciatingly hard. We, we just know by the many times we failed at doing that. But if Jesus learned obedience through suffering, then we can say, okay, suffering, one of God's purposes is to help us learn to obey. Um, and so, y'all have any further and, thoughts and on that? Part of that, excuse me. No, please, go ahead. Uh, part of that is just submitting to his Father's will. I mean, mm -hmm. just, he learned obedience through submitting well, his parents' will or his Father's will for him always. And uh, that was a process for him because he'd never been human before and so the, the the man side of him had to experience all of this all all new i mean I, unless there was a blueprint for the, the son the son of man and, and and as he experienced these things he learned to submit he learned to concede to his father always asking thy will be done and just kind of around verse seven and just in light of christ being tempted in, in, a, in light of ways we never could imagine. Notice in verse 7, uh, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. I want to draw your attention to the word supplication there. There's only one use of that word 
in all of the New Testament, and it's right here. The word literally means a desperate plea. In fact, one scholar actually translates it a desperate, 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 desperate plea. And the reason it's only ever used one time is because only Jesus has ever actually fully suffered and cried out in that way. Only Jesus has actually been to a level, level of suffering you will never reach. And this gives us glimpse and revelation into Gethsemane. And I really think that's what the author of Hebrews here is drawing on is when Christ was crying out to his father in prayer in Gethsemane. And we need that revelation because no one else was there in that way other than Christ himself. And so in light of suffering, not to mitigate or minimize anyone's suffering and anything that anyone has experienced, but in comparison to Christ himself, it does not come close. So again, how much greater a high priest who can actually empathize with your weaknesses, note the plural there, weaknesses, and actually has cried out in suffering and cried out with supplication that he himself has only ever reached. And that's important for us because it causes us to persevere. It's those truths that cause us to persevere in the faith. It helps us with any internal pulling we have away from Christ to be distracted, right? To, for whether it be sin or whether it be a good cause. You know, something can be good, but if it distracts you from Christ, then you're failing. And so it also prevents us from the, the push of life where outside persecution and suffering and circumstances. I mean, remember, the, the, the audience that the author's writing to is a group who's being persuaded to leave Jesus Christ and the gospel and the new covenant and go back to Judaism. They're having pressure from the Roman Empire persecuting them at this point in history. So they're feeling both this push and this pull. And so that speaks to our lives as well when we feel drawn to go back to our former way of life or to get caught up in some cause that very well may be good. It may be feeding the homeless. But if it distracts you from Christ, then you've missed it. As good as it is. It may not even be sin. That's why in chapter 12, the author warns us to cast off every sin and every encumbrance that causes us to fail the run. Any sin, yes, but I think that we tend not to worry about the, the things in our life that cause us to be just encumbered, that are good things. So I think that's something to be mindful of, especially in light of suffering. That, that's, that's very helpful. So let, let's, let's head back to the beginning of chapter 5, and we'll work our way through here. Um, now he's going to go back and talk about human priests other than Jesus in the Old Testament, and he's going to make a comparison between them and Jesus. So this is uh, Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This again, this is all human priests before Jesus. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. As he said also in another place, and I quote Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we'll reread verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So let's just go back here real quick with the beginning of 5. So priests were appointed by God to act on behalf of other men in relation to God. Verse 2 is great because this does point to Jesus ultimately. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, But here's the difference between those priests and Jesus. Those priests had to do what? They had to offer sacrifice first for their own sin and then for the sins of the people. Whereas clearly Jesus, since he's sinless, offers himself as the sacrifice for the people. But you see here, God appoints the priest. God appointed Jesus. Uh, The priests are uh, beset with weaknesses so that they can be sympathetic, that they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Jesus had human weaknesses so that he could deal sympathetically with us. But he's superior for so many reasons, but, but because he doesn't have sin himself. Um, now, I'm gonna, I want to hear from you guys here. The Melchizedek part, uh, we can touch on it tonight, but that will be coming in a few weeks. Uh, the whole, all of chapter 7. You, you Melchizedek lovers in the room, I think maybe two weeks from now, you come back for the Melchizedekian priest. It, I, it took me three years just to learn how to say Melchizedekian priest, but I can say it now, ladies and gentlemen. It, it's an accomplishment. Can it's, you do that one more time? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I can. <laughs> I'll probably say it wrong. But Melchizedek is coming up in a couple of weeks. So, uh, we'll, we'll get to more on that uh, shortly. But anything on, on this uh, right now? Well, we've talked about the kingship of Christ. And the other thing we're going to see is the priesthood of Christ and you know, we talk about these, um, these offices in the Old Testament or these institutions. You've got the priesthood. You've got the, the, the line of the kings. You've got the whole Levitical sacrificial system. You've got the tabernacle and the temple. You know, all of these things converge in Christ. You know, he is the fulfillment of all of them. And so we, 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 we know there needs to be a, a king ruling over the people of God, and we've got to have a high priest to intercede for the people of God. And both of those offices are joined together in Jesus. Um, we don't have two, two people. We have one. He is both king and priest. Um, and um, what is it? Melchizedek, the, the guy he's talking about that we'll deal more with um, in a few weeks. You know, he was king of Salem, but he was also priest to God Most High. So he was a king and a priest. So he, he holds a unique um, uh, station, if you will, of, of combining those two. Because Jesus is not of the line of Aaron. He, he's not of the Levitical priesthood. He's, he is disqualified from serving as a Levitical priest because he's from the line of Judah, not from the line of Levi. Um, but what is interesting, and again, just preview here, Jesus belongs or is appointed by God to a priesthood greater than that of the Levitical priesthood, one to which the Levitical priesthood itself is subservient, um, as he's going to show. So again, just kind of by way of preview, we're joining to, the author is joining together the, the, the office of the priest and the office of the king in the person of Jesus. Um, and it's going to be really amazing when we get there, but... Jesus, one of the reasons he's a superior priest is because he belongs to a different priestly order 
than the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, everything he does as that priest is going to be fundamentally greater because it's a greater office. Yeah, just on this part, you can almost see, inside, well, you can see inside the author's head because he tells you what he's thinking. So all the Melchizedek stuff that Greg's talking about, it's coming in chapter 7. He says it, look at it again, verse 9 of chapter 5. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So now he's mentioned Melchizedek at least twice. I think it's two times. And then he, he just stops. He's like, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. That's what he's thinking to the people he's writing to. We're like, you are correct. We have no idea what's happening. Okay, if this is the first time you'd heard about Melchizedek, you're, you're stumped. So he actually has to get into a section here where he's going to start giving a rebuke to the people because they're not ready for Melchizedek. And I'm like, wow, this is getting personal now because am I ready for Melchizedek? So look, look what he does. He, he just said Melchizedek's name twice. And he knows this is getting into the deep waters of theology. Like, it's really deep. And he's like, I don't think y'all are ready yet. And, and here's, his, here's his, what he says, verse 11. About this we have much to say. We could go on about Melchizedek all day long, is what he's saying. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So would one of you guys start us through this paragraph? I've got to share this. I don't know how far we're going to go with this, but this is hilarious because if you know Al Mohler, there's a Mohler quote in there. He's 10 years old. He said, now he's, now he's 54 or 5, I don't know, something like that. So he, re, he brings this up. He says, when I was 10 years old, my dad, I told my dad that I didn't feel well. He said, what's wrong, son? He said, I have a tummy ache. He said, son, you do not have a tummy ache. You have a stomach ache. <laughs> So they're, at 10 years old, he was trying to encourage his son to grow up. You don't have a tummy, you have a stomach. <laughs> so, you know, the, the point is we need to mature. We need to, to grow up. Uh, and I don't know when that is, but you all know when that is, uh, those of you that have children. But some of you are not grown up anyway. But, uh, you know, he's, he's challenged. This is another warning passage. I mean, he stops in the middle of all this Melchizedekian stuff to come back and say, hey, you're, you're, you're not hearing because you're dull of hearing. Uh, you, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles, the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You're not ready for solid food. And I'm saying, hey, when do you get ready? Now, today, while it is today, uh, open your Bibles and read the Word of God. Don't be dull of hearing. And so if you have an infant who's, you know, five months old, uh, milk is the diet, right? That's what, you, that's what you got. And that's a healthy thing. A baby who desires milk is healthy. That's a sign of health. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, when you are 45 years old and you only drink milk, you, get, you come home, you got a big glass of milk, you sit down for dinner, it's a big glass of milk, you get up for breakfast, 
just a bowl with milk. There's nothing, no cereal. And then you, you go to lunch and you're, you're there with your you know, fellow employees. They're all getting out their sandwiches and you got some chicken wings over there. And you're like, hey, man, what you, you got this giant thing of milk. Like, this, is, this is all, I, I love milk. And when you're 46 and that's what you're eating, something is desperately wrong. <laughs> and he's saying, this congregation, this group, they should have advanced to where things like how Melchizedek points to Jesus, their stomach spiritually should be able to handle that kind of meat. It is a, like, I'll blame Vody Bauckham for this quote. So if you want to get mad about this, blame, I just blame Vody. He's Because you don't really want to get in an argument with Vody. But um, that'd be bad. So Vody Bauckham basically said, you know, again, I'm quoting him if you're mad. So he, he said, when I, when I look at modern American Christianity, he says, I, I see a lot of, and he's talking about men he's known, men who've been Christians for, remember, I don't know, some of y'all have seen this clip, men who've been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. And he said, as a young Christian, he goes to them and he says, hey, can you disciple me in how to be a growing Christian? And they're like, oh, I ain't no pastor. I don't know anything about, I don't know anything about spiritual life. Like, Come on, I don't, don't, I don't know about all that. I can't do that. He's like, you, wait, how long have you been a Christian? 44 years? And you can't give me the basics of discipleship as, as a new Christian. And the guy's like, oh, no, go talk to your pastor. He said, well, imagine a guy who's a bricklayer who's been laying bricks for 30, 40 years. And you go to him and say, sir, can you show me how to lay bricks? And he says, I don't know nothing about no bricks. <laughs> like, what? Something, something would be horribly wrong there. You know, a guy who's a mechanic who works in cars all day long, has got the black doesn't come off the hands, you know? It's like this guy knows how to work on cars, unlike me, and he can, do, he can fix anything. You go to that guy, he's been a mechanic for 35 years, uh, part of his finger's missing because he's, he's always working on the car, and, and you go talk to this guy and he says, hey, um, can you help me? And he says, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how to help you. And, and Vody Bauckham said, it would be unacceptable to talk that way in any field of work, but when it comes to the spiritual life, we have adult men who talk that way. It's like, what is wrong here? Uh, what you have, and Vody said this, okay, Vody. He said, what we have is we have 60-year-old babies in the church. Not all, but this, in general, it is not hard in the United States to find someone who's been a Christian their whole life, gone to church multiple times a week their whole life, and they can't tell you a word about Melchizedek. Like, what, Melchizedek who? Uh, th th I, there's no theology. There's no systematic theology. There's no historical theology. There's no Christian biography. There's no sense of the confessions and creeds. There's, there's nothing there. They just have... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is good all the time, isn't he? There's no theology. It's just these pithy statements. It's like, where's your spine? Like, where, where's your robust doctrine? You've been a Christian for four decades, and you know as much as the kid who just left VBS. Wow. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send myself a hate email after this is over. But, but my, my, I, you see what Vody is getting at. Like, this author is saying it's absolutely unacceptable that we would be a Christian year after year after year and not know the Bible better substantially than we did five years ago. I mean, it just... One more. Someone take over, please. Okay, um, I'll, I'll say one thing, because um, I understand where you're coming from, yeah. and I want to be careful because I can get fired up on this issue as well. But it does seem like, and, you know, again, it's easy to say that up here, but I've, I've been around... Um, you know, a number of Christians from a number of different backgrounds, and there is just generally a, an allergic reaction to anything that we would call deep or theological. And generally speaking, in the church today, um, folks do not want deep theology. They don't think that it's practical to everyday living. They don't think that it's relevant to, to their marriage, to their family. They just want 10 steps on how to, to be a good husband or 10 steps on how to be a good employee. 
Um, and if you actually preach the Bible for the Bible, a lot of people have a hard time with it. Um, and that's, that's indicative of the church in general. Um, by God's grace, our church strives to not be like that and is not like that. And there are others as well, um, a growing number by God's grace. Um, but it, it is a, a, a sign of immaturity, um, extreme immaturity, to have an allergic reaction to doctrine, to have an allergic reaction to theology, to going deep in the Word. Um, you know, I, I won't say who, who I had this conversation with, but when Mark would, gave one of those little short little blurbs through Romans uh, a while back, where you were, like it was Romans 9, you were kind of just doing a brief exposition of it, kind of working, walking through the text. It was like 15 minutes. But it was very, very good, helpful. It was understandable. And I, I, showed, I, I had somebody listen to that, and their comment was, oh, he's just being theological. No, he just explained the text. No, he's just being theological. I mean, he didn't want to think, and that's the problem. We have a generation of professing Christians who don't want to think. Most, as far as I know, this company accepted in here. But there are so many out there. They don't want to think. Um, R.C. Sproul's whole ministry, renewing their mind. John MacArthur, if I've heard any emphasis from him, truth affects the heart through the mind. We have to think. And that's why he says you've become dull of hearing, but it goes beyond just a, an, a, a, a mental... He's not talking about a mental uh, immaturity. This is a moral immaturity. Your hearts are dull to the truth. This is an indictment on the state of people's hearts. And that's why it is so dangerous um, and, 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 and not a good place to be. And, and again, the, the whole, um, you know, it, can, can you remain a baby Christian forever? Well, we know you can't lose your salvation. But the whole emphasis of this as we get into chapter 6, you know, saying let's leave this elementary stuff behind and go into maturity. Because he's talking about if, if, if you can't get a grasp on the basics, then maybe you don't have the basics at all. Um, so this actually digs down into something deeper. And do we really know God if, if we have no desire to learn His Word as it is? Because again, the example with when Mark just explained Romans 9, he's not like going reading a systematic theology textbook. He was explaining the text. And we have, and, and by God's grace, this church is, is unique, and we, I love this, but be, be prepared to have conversations with people to push them and challenge them to think through the Scriptures, to think, not just, well, that, and you know what I'm talking about. Well, how was the sermon? Oh, the sermon was great. What did the preacher talk about? I have no idea. It really impacted me. Well, what did he talk about? I have no idea. Like, we've got to get beyond that. And that's not saying you're going to be able to regurgitate every single thing that was said, but if it's impactful, we ought to be able to give something. And again, this church is unique, but we know people. We're, we, we work with people, people in our family. I deal with this um, in my family. Um, push people to think um, so this condemnation here isn't true of them. Well, I guess since we're all just putting ourselves on the stake here, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to be blunt. Um, according to this text... If you have no genuine desire to learn, you really need to question your salvation. Um, just to be blunt, genuine Christianity comes with a genuine desire to learn of God and His Word. That's just simple 
Um, it doesn't mean you have to be the greatest scholar, the greatest theologian, or know everything. But if you're content with the genuine desire to learn, because their issue isn't that they didn't hear. They were taught. It's that they didn't listen. They should be at the point of being teachers, but yet they have to go back to the basic milk of the doctrines of the gospel and the truths. Not that we ever mature out of the gospel, that's not my point, but my point is that if you have no genuine desire to learn about God and his word, you may not even be saved. And that's one reason, same with Mark and Greg, I love North Avenue because I see such a genuine heart and love for the Lord here and his word here. Um, There is that genuine passion to not just know knowledge for knowledge's sake, but genuinely how it's going to impact my life to where I can worship my God better. But according to this text, if you do not have a desire to learn about God and his word, you may not be saved. And that is why he's... Look, Christian maturity is twofold here. One, knowing scripture, and two, having the practice and, and training in their senses to discern good and evil. The only way you can know good and evil is if you know the word of God. It's if you saturate your mind and your life in scripture because it's truth. And in fact, what's so interesting here is the author chooses uh, to use this term discern good and evil. The word here for good is kalos, and the word for evil here is kakos. The difference is one letter in the Greek language, which means the author is saying you should be able, with genuine spiritual maturity, you should have such a discernment between good and evil that you should be able to tell the difference between the two if it's only one letter. And the only way you're going to know that is if you're saturated in the word and the will of God as revealed in Scripture. Because only in that will you grow to maturity, and only in that will you be able to discern good from evil. Because it's a moral issue. It's just like Greg said. This unwilling to listen and learn is a heart issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. That's the point. Tyler, can I just jump in? Because I want to, I want to reemphasize that because I think what, what I was saying could easily be misunderstood. So this is good that you said that. This has nothing to do with intellectual ability at all. Zero. Um, there can be brilliant people who don't want to go into Scripture for five minutes. And, and uh, there are people I've known in my life, different points in my life, who would not claim to be like brilliantly intelligent intellectually who have a genuine hunger for Scripture. Um, so so this, this has nothing to do with IQ at all. This has to do with the desires in the heart. And if you desire Scripture, it's going to show whatever that might look like. You, someone might be genuinely illiterate and could be growing in their knowledge of Christ. They might have an audio Bible. They might be talking to people about Scripture. They might be memorizing Scripture. But if there's a real born-again heart, that will show itself in a hunger. Completely irrelevant is is intellectual ability. That has nothing to do with with that. That's a helpful point. And and, I mean, this goes back to verse 12 of chapter 4, right? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God will pierce between where you are and expose you. Literally, the Word is is of um, being exposed here is the concept of being naked and then laid bare is this concept of a sword being at the throat of an animal or a human who's about to be sacrificed or executed. It's literally the sword is at their neck while they're looking up for their execution. 
That's what the Word of God does. It exposes our thoughts and intentions of our heart. It gets to the core and reveals the very things that you do not want anyone to know or yourself to live with because it exposes that. And a genuine believer is going to delight in that because it's going to push them towards repentance and holiness, exposing sin to where they flee from sin and pursue holiness and righteousness and godly living. You and I have talked about the purpose of a lot of these warning passages, and it's just that. If you're, if you're a believer and you're, you read something like this, you're like, oh, God, I'm, I'm convicted that I'm, I'm, I'm not in the Word enough, or I'm, you know, I, I'm... But if you're not, it, it doesn't have an impact on you at all. Yeah. And that's the design of a warning passage, specifically in Hebrews. I mean, it's a sermon by genre, so these warning passages, are, just like Fred's saying, are designed to either soften your heart or harden your heart. That's what they're here for. The author's using them to either soften one's heart towards a greater embrace of Christ and the gospel or to harden one's heart to push them further away to reveal that they never truly were saved. That's the point of the warning. So if you're feeling compelled to pursue Christ from these warning passages, just pastorally speaking, that's a good thing. And run, strive, race to Christ, the great high priest. Don't let it harden your heart. Okay, that, this is really good. We've got just a few minutes left. As we come to an end, I've got a couple of questions here. So, um, so I'll put the two questions together, and maybe, Greg, I'll, I'll throw this to you. And just, if you've got nothing, just pass it on. So um, number one, uh, what, what are some good ways to – so say someone is more in that infancy stage. What are some good ways to just – what we're doing now is not how you talk to that person, like, like passionately, like this is a different setting. When you're one-on-one with somebody, you don't do that. So, so what are some, some humble, gracious, kind ways to, to spur on some more thinking for, for someone who's maybe in that stage? And, and it, what are some ways to sort of spur them on? I'll start with that question. Um, I'll, I'll list a couple of things, and please, guys, add to this. Um, one thing, if it's you and a friend, someone you're closer to, um, first thing... Find a good sermon or something um, on this that handles an issue like this well and say, hey, listen to this and let's talk about it. Because I've, I've found sometimes, I'm trying to remember, um, you can either be, it was in reference to teacher, um, you can either be the sage on stage or um, there, there's the, the opposite of that, like you can kind of be the facilitator, like if, if you're not the one always giving the words, you might actually get a greater opportunity to talk about an issue. Um, because if, if it's you, sometimes um, people will have more of a guard up. But if you can listen to a sermon, and goes, okay, let's talk about this. He said this, and, mm-hmm. and it, it can open avenues to discussion that you might not have otherwise. So that's one thing you can do. Listen to a solid sermon on an issue and then discuss it with someone. Another thing is just open up the text and, you know, let's, let's just say we... We can read, we can understand basic English and language. Let's read this. This is what it says. This is what it means. What, what do you do with that? If, 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 if somebody is, and again, depending on the relationship, you know how far you can push. Um, but just, just ask the question. It's like, I see, look, it seems like Scripture saying something different than what you're practicing. How, how, how did, what do you do with this? If, if you say that I can live this way, think this way, and, and this... But Scripture is saying these things over here in opposition to what you're saying. What do you do with that? And what, what questions like that will do is, is, one, hopefully get that person to think, but it will also expose the real issue underlying um, 
the trajectory of someone's life. Um, and, and, you know, you may find a person really is not submitted to the Word of God. Um, because if you can show from Scripture, you know, commitment to Christ, responsibility in pursuing Christ and growing and maturing, and they're, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but, 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 well, let's just look at Scripture. And if they won't submit to Scripture, then you've got the point in which you need to pray for that person and you need to admonish lovingly but firmly Hey, well, well, this gets to a deeper issue than just disagreement over, you know, how serious should I take this? No, it's, this is actually, we will either accept Scripture as God's authoritative word, or we won't. And if you don't accept it, then that's when we can start to say, well, you need to seriously consider where you are. That, that's helpful. And Papa Fred, just real quick, I've spent a lot of time with guys trying to put them on track. So what would you say? Well, I, I think, of course, COVID has affected this to some degree, but I think small group Bible study is is helpful. I don't mean deep theological, you know, but I'm just talking about pick a book, Philippians. We're going through Philippians as a church. Uh, study Philippians with a couple people and 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 talk about it. And um, you, you're preaching on it, so you've got a, a guide. So, uh, and when we're in other books too, while we're going through uh, I think we're in Genesis now, I think, as a church. So um, just always expose yourself to the Word. Uh, I, I grew up in a liturgical background, and, and we didn't even take a Bible to church. And, and, and you, you just, you know, I had to learn this as an adult, and, which makes it more difficult. But we live in the Bible Belt where everybody's got a Bible now. And so, but... You've got to open it, and you've got to read it, and and so and, and you to some degree, you some people have to be pushed. Thus, the warning passages. I would just say, just simple biblical discipleship. <clears throat> um, just to be clear, going and getting coffee with a friend and talking about the Bible—that's not discipleship. Um, that's a good thing to do. It's helpful. It's great. Me and Fred do it a lot. I mean, I don't knock it. Um, but biblical discipleship is life on life with one another, um, going through scripture, walking together, praying for one another, with one another, and just, you know, living life together in, in that sense. And so I would say that would uh, just kind of, basically all I'm doing is just summarizing exactly what Fred and Greg said to where it feels like I have something to say. Um, but also pray for them. I mean, God's sovereign. He's the only one who can change their heart. And use scripture because we're sanctified by truth. God's word is truth. So just pray for them in their heart and pray for wisdom in that. Uh, Pray for wisdom with how to actually disciple them or, you know, what's the best questions to ask to get to these issues in a gentle, kind way. Um, I think Greg was really helpful with, um, with his answer on that. So. All right, we are out of time. Greg, can you pray for us? Yeah, we have to. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ a, a great uh, high priest who uh, identifies with us, who empathizes with us in our weakness. God, he understands temptation more than we ever will, and he conquered it. And thank you, Father, that in him we have someone who gets us and what we struggle with Um, and is ready and able to give us all the help we need. Lord, help us 
even tonight, Lord, if, if we face something, Lord, and we more than likely will, even if it seems a small thing, help us draw near to you and, and to Christ and, and see the help and the, the, the grace that is available. Um, Father, thank you um, that Christ was obedient um, at every stage and in every way for us and our salvation. And Father, um, Lord, help us, even though we, we can affirm uh, the end of chapter 5, uh, that we don't want to be dull of hearing. Lord, guard each of us from becoming that. God, it is easy to slide into that through negligence um, of seeking you and prayer and the Word um, on a regular basis in our lives. Guard each one of us, um, Father, from, from sliding into that state of being dull of hearing where we don't want to learn, where we don't desire you and your Word. And Lord, for those who... Um, have relationships with folks that they're concerned about, Lord, um, myself included. Lord, give us grace in those relationships to speak clearly, to speak with conviction, to speak boldly, and yet with humility and brokenness, God, because we know what's at stake um, in these matters. And Father, for those that, that are on our hearts that we want to see passionate for you, passionate for your word, desirous of you and hungry to learn, God, work in their hearts. God, overcome by your sovereign power their resistance and their dullness and bring life, bring renewal, uh, bring salvation even, if that is what is needed. God, thank you for our church God, thank you for the commitment to your word in this church, Lord. May, may North Avenue always uh, be marked by a, a, a wholehearted commitment to the word of God and to the gospel and to Christ as superior overall. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.